All right, open your Bibles or navigate on your device or peek at somebody else's open Bible to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 26 this morning. The topic we find there, God the Father sends Jesus to Jacob's well, where a Samaritan woman believes him and is saved. The title of our message, Saved by the Well. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the worship that we enjoyed a few moments ago, drawing us into praise, Lord, and then realizing that our praise is rising as an incense to heaven, uh, something that's sweet for you something that is a gift to you, Lord, and, and though we certainly don't think of ourselves that way, you do, because you're uh, your father. And just like any father listening to the, the singing of his child or his children, Lord, uh, it brings joy to your heart, and we thank you for that. It certainly brings joy to us, Lord, to consider that we are going to spend eternity worshiping you and working for you and just being blessed in every way that uh, is imaginable. Right now, Lord, we're on the earth. We um, are in different circumstances, in different situations. Uh, some are enjoying times of blessing, Lord. Others are being buffeted. Uh, we find the world in a strange condition, Lord. But our mission hasn't changed. It's the great commission, Lord, to bring you to as many as possible in these last days before you take us home. I pray, Lord, as we listen to the Gospel of John taught this morning, that you would be our teacher, that we would gain insight, uh, and wisdom from you, from above. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. In July 1975, Erskine Eben was knocked off his moped and killed by a taxi in Hamilton, Bermuda. It was the same taxi with the same driver carrying the same passenger that had killed his brother Neville in the same month the previous year. Both brothers were 17 when they died, and both had been riding the same moped in the same street. There are other even more fantastic versions of that story on the web. This was fact-checked. It was an incredible coincidence. Do Christians think anything is coincidental? Well, not really. Theologians call coincidence God's particular providence. Adam Clark puts it this way, nothing is more astonishing than the care and concern of God for his followers. The least circumstances of their life are regulated, not merely by that general providence which extends to all things, but by a particular providence which fits and directs all things to the design of their sanctification, causing them all to cooperate for their present and eternal good. Non-theologians call coincidences God incidences. The story of the Samaritan woman at the well is a God incidence that illustrates particular providence. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, God is above the circumstances of your life. And number two, God appoints the coincidences in your life. Let's take a look at our circumstances in verses one through four. Let me ask you a question. How are you positioned in terms of living with your circumstances? We sometimes say that a person is doing as well as expected under the circumstances. The Christian does not live under circumstances. You are to live far above them. The Bible says we are in Christ and are described as being seated with him in the heavenlies. God works all things together for our good. 
Troubles and trials refine us as fire purifies gold. We can boast in our sufferings and take pleasure in afflictions. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors. To paraphrase Simba, we triumph in the face of danger. And so we could go on and on listing more and more verses that deal with the fact that we are not to be burdened by circumstances, but to cast our care upon Jesus because he cares for us. He said his yoke is easy and his burden was light. And so uh, if you're under certain circumstances this morning, get out from under them. I hope that by the time we're through this morning, you'll be thinking more of yourself as seated in heaven with Christ, looking down, wondering perhaps how all things are going to work together for good and glory. Now, when we started this series in the Gospel of John, we decided to observe Jesus as a man filled with God the Holy Spirit. Jesus was fully God and fully human. He added humanity to his deity. He was the unique God-man, still is, uh, never set aside his deity. Uh, Jesus didn't stop being God to become a man and then become God again. That's a heresy uh, called modalism, I believe. I could be wrong. Check with Jacob Kelso on that. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, Jesus is fully God. But in terms of his time on earth in his incarnation, he determined that he would set aside the independent use of his deity and wholly depend upon his father the same way a spirit-filled human being can. Now, Jesus said of himself, of his time on earth, this is from the Gospel of John, I have not spoken on my own authority. Instead, the Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to speak. Uh, Jesus also said, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what, the Father sees, uh, only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus said, I only said what my Father told me to say, and I only did what my Father told me to do. I never used the, my deity. I walked as a human being in obedience to the Father. And so we find that Jesus lived above his circumstances by simply obeying his Father. So if we're wondering, well, how do I live above my circumstances? You simply obey the Word of God and you believe that you can because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, and so let's get into the text. Verse 1, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. John the Baptist had preached that the king was coming and the kingdom of God on earth was at hand. Jews needed to prepare to become citizens of the kingdom by repenting of their sin, signified by water baptism. One glorious day, John identified Jesus as the king who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Afterward, Jesus' disciples began baptizing Jews in water for repentance, looking forward to the kingdom and the baptism of the Spirit. The Lord baptized no one because if he had done so, they probably would have mistaken water baptism for repentance, which was external and preparatory, with full baptism in the Spirit, which is internal and permanent. The messenger heralded the king. His subjects were preparing themselves to be ruled. His ministry was increasing day after day. The religious leaders were taking notice. Everything seemed to be going great. It was the perfect time to 
leave and go through Samaria? That's the last thing that anybody would have thought. But it says in verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. Needed can mean ought, should, must, or necessary. Now remember, I just said, Jesus only always obeyed his father. He obeyed by leaving Judea, and only then did he understand he ought, should, must, of necessity, go through Samaria. Let me support that biblically by reminding us of a similar story. Philip was involved in a successful gospel ministry, coincidentally in the region of Samaria, we learn in Acts chapter 8. God, via an angel, commanded Philip to leave Samaria and sit along the desert road that led from Jerusalem to Gaza. He went immediately, obediently. He had no idea along that road he would encounter the caravan of the Ethiopian eunuch, lead that man to faith in Jesus, baptize him by the side of the road so that he could take Jesus back to the court of the Candace of Ethiopia and the gospel would spread. So Philip has a successful ministry in Samaria. God says, you're done here. I want you to go and hang out by this road. And that's what he did. And then his opportunity came. The coincidence came. Coincidentally, he was there when the Ethiopian eunuch came by. None of these uh, circumstances uh, would have happened if Philip had not been obedient. And Jesus is an example of that as well. He lived above his circumstances by obeying his father. His father said, leave what you're doing here with the baptizing and head out to uh, Galilee. And then he found out why he needed to stop at the well and minister to this woman. You and I have the same Holy Spirit in us as Philip and Jesus. And so the key thing is obedience. The Holy Spirit will always encourage your obedience and he will enable you to obey. As we've said almost every Sunday for the whole time we've ever been here, God's word is God's enabling. Whatever you read in God's word, if you're a Christian filled with the spirit, you can do. It's not a matter of learning how to do it. There's a learning curve to do it well. But um, if the Bible says you should love your wife as Christ loved the church or submit to your husband as unto the Lord, you can do those things right now. You won't do them perfectly. Hopefully you'll get better at it. But it's the Holy Spirit inside of you who enables you to do it, not some list that you put on your refrigerator or a seminar or anything like that. You already have on board the power you need. And so sit down next to your Lord and look down through his eyes upon your circumstances. He enjoys the view because he knows that he is working all things together for your good and his glory. He's not obligated to share all of, uh, you know, the future with you. But, you know, sitting there with the Lord, you will have a confidence that he is at work. Now, secondly, God appoints the coincidences in your life. That's the remainder of the chapter. Coincidence may not mean what we think. One source said the word coincidence is translated from the Greek word synkirion, which is a combination of two words, son and kurios. Son means together with and kurios means supreme in authority. A biblical definition of coincidence would be what occurs together by God's providential arrangement of circumstances. And so coincidence, what we call coincidence, really is just God's particular providence. It's God at work. Let me issue a brief disclaimer. Uh, Particular providence is not what some people call meticulous providence. R.C. Sproul summarized meticulous providence saying, there is no maverick molecule 
if God is sovereign. He meant that everything is foreordained by God to happen down to the molecular level. I'll skip to the logical conclusion. If God's sovereignty can only mean that everything is meticulously determined, then it renders God the cause of evil. We believe the Bible teaches that in his sovereignty, God created man with free will and works out his general and particular providences without reducing us to choiceless automatons. Now back into the text, verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. They weren't the jets and the sharks, but Jews despised Samaritans. After the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., they deported most of the Jews and replaced them with foreigners. They then intermarried with the remaining Jews. Malfoy might call them half-bloods because they were no longer pure-blood Jews. Now, verse 6, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. High noon and a weary, thirsty Jesus sat by the well. Take that in for a minute. God was tired and thirsty. Jesus was fully human, understanding all of our experiences and urges, but without sin. The Father used Jesus' weariness. We are taught to be at the top of our game, to give 110%, never to let them see us sweat, always to be ready, to leave it all on the field. I would have more of that, except I canceled my subscription to ESPN. <laughs> Meantime, God says, I'm going to use your weaknesses to glorify me. Because if I'm always at 110% or more and leaving it all on the field, then it's me, possibly, that is you know, uh, doing all these things. But if I'm at maybe 45%, like I am most of the time, then it's the Lord and he gets the glory. If you are tired or weary or infirm or even unprepared, that's great. You are ready to serve and in a way that God will get all the credit. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Had Jesus not been weary, he might have gone into town with his boys. He might have missed this particular providence, God incidence coincidence. Noon was an unusual time for a woman to come to the well. It was a social gathering place for the gals in the early morning hours. This suggests that our woman's immoral lifestyle factored into her well visits. She is the Bible's bad Samaritan. You know, there's a story of the good Samaritan. She's the bad Samaritan. Why did all the disciples go into town? We're not told, so we're not going to speculate. But we can point out the obvious Jesus was left alone. Are you lonesome tonight? A new Harvard study says 36% of all Americans, including 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children, feel serious loneliness. Loneliness appears to have increased substantially since the outbreak of the global pandemic. The potentially steep costs of loneliness include early mortality and a wide array of serious physical and emotional problems, including depression, anxiety, heart disease, substance abuse, and domestic violence. I would add suicide to that list. 
A new report by the Wellbeing Trust released last month found that 75,000 additional people could die from what they call deaths of despair because of COVID-19, not the virus itself, but the uh, uh, plans to uh, overcome it, the isolation, the quarantine, those kinds of things. You've got an empathetic friend in Jesus. He's in heaven, but remember he promised you the Holy Spirit would dwell within you. The disciples, uh, the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus said, hey, I'm leaving. And they were upset, they were sad. They didn't wanna see Jesus go, but he said, it's really a good thing that I go because then I can send the promised Holy Spirit to indwell each of you and to be in the world as well. And that Holy Spirit is a counselor and a comforter who comes alongside. You are never alone if you're a Christian. Now, all of us do this, uh, I, I, I think, where we think, hey, I know that Jesus is always there, but I'd really like a person to talk to or someone that's touchable or, you know, that kind of thing, a real person. And we just need to get over that. I mean, the fellowship is wonderful. Uh, I don't like to touch you, but, you know, that, that's okay. You can touch each other if you'd like. Uh, th that's between you and them. But, you know what I mean, fellowship is a great thing, but we have to understand that Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, lives within you if you're a Christian, and you are never alone, and nobody knows you like Jesus. And so if you think there's some problem where you have to have another person, no matter how close that person is, you haven't understood what it's like to be uh, you know, really filled with the Holy Spirit in that sense. Uh, I mean, you just don't think about it that way. You have an onboard comforter. Do you need comfort? Call somebody, that's fine, but you already have a comforter. Do you need counsel? You already have a counselor. Uh, do you, you need somebody to come alongside? You have somebody to come alongside. We are never alone. God cannot be less sufficient than another human being. Uh, so just think about that and consider that. You are never, ever, ever alone. Verse nine, then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I wonder, did she hesitate on her approach when she saw a Jew was at the well? Be like when you spot someone at the grocery store and you duck down an aisle. <laughs> no, I've never done that. I've seen you do that when you see me, but that's, you know, I'm sort of, I sort of understand that. Try and keep my eyes raised so I don't look at what people are buying because, you know, I don't, partly because I don't want to know. But anyway, uh, who knows? You know, it was unusual for somebody to be at the well at noon and especially uh, a lone Jewish man. One commentator writes, imagine a white man in the South years ago where they had separate drinking fountains for whites and what they called coloreds, asking a black woman if he could have a drink from her canteen. That is the level of a difficulty that Jesus was at here with this Samaritan woman. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You could study this encounter as a primer on personal evangelism. Jesus started where this woman was, drawing water from a well, and so he compared her physical thirst to her spiritual thirst. We deduce that everyone is thirsty for God. 
The Bible says God has put eternity in our hearts, and it says that he scattered people around the globe for the express purpose that they would seek after him and find him. People are always criticizing God, saying, well, what about people who don't have the gospel, who've never heard the gospel on the other side of the earth? You don't know any of those people, but there must be some, right? And, and the thing is, in Acts, Paul the Apostle said, God scattered them on purpose so that they would seek him and find him. And I scratch my head and think, how does that work out? I don't know exactly how it works out, but God said he's into it. And then we know that creation declares the glory of God. Everybody wants to lessen the impact of creation, but in a sense, it's like the First Testament uh, before the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the First and the New Testament. It's a testament of the glory of God. And our belief here is that if you start seeking after God, He will be found by you because He is not hiding. Living water means running water. Jesus wanted to establish that what He was offering could not be depleted and would bring unending satisfaction. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Commentators suggest that the Samaritan woman at some point became cynical, rude, maybe even hostile. It seems to me that she was genuinely baffled. She did not yet realize that she was in a spiritual conversation with the Son of God. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? This is a rhetorical question. She was disputing Jesus' claim because she thought he could not be greater than the patriarch from whom both Jews and Samaritans were descended. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. With Nicodemus in chapter 3, Jesus used birth as a metaphor and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again, born a second time. With the woman, he used thirst. Now, Nicodemus and this woman are at opposite extremes. This is a great study in and of itself. He was a man. She was a woman. He was a religious leader. She was a, a terrible sinner. He was a Jew, she was a Samaritan. Uh, everything about them was opposite, and yet Jesus ministered to both of them. Their need for him was equal, and so was his offer of salvation. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Samaritan, and in that culture it meant that it didn't matter who you were, you needed Jesus Christ, you were thirsty for him, and he could satisfy that thirst. Drinking well water was hard work, and it was repetitive since the water drawn would run out. Religion is hard work, and it's repetitive. I, most of you know I grew up in a Roman Catholic tradition. You'd go to in, in San Bernardino, where I went to church at St. Anne's with Father O'Toole. You went uh, into confession on Saturday afternoon or evening, hoped you didn't sin overnight uh, so that you could take communion with some purity on Sunday, and then for the rest of the week you were on your own until confession again on Saturday. Uh, but for penance... They would always tell you, uh, the priest would always say, say X number of Hail Marys and X number of Our Fathers and the act of contrition. And uh, so I can't calculate how many Hail Marys I said. You know, not, I mean, not that you're such a sinner, but I mean, it adds up over time. Week after week after week, say five Hail Marys and ten Our Fathers or vice versa and stuff. And I mean, it's, you know, uh, you get pretty fast. You start, that's where I think the, the one guy that's on the radio that gives the summary of what happened, talks like that. 
he's obviously a Catholic. <laughs> I mean, that guy could do 10 Hail Marys like that, you know, and stuff. But that's the way religion is. It's repetitive. And it's stupidly repetitive. Uh, I mean, how, how could that help anybody? What is that? And, and before I knew the Lord, I, I thought I was made holy by fudging on religion, you know, by getting by. I would, as a kid, I mean, you're a kid, you lose count. Oh, I lost count. I guess I'm done. Uh, I mean, it was all just outward nonsense and stuff. And, but, but we're hungry. We're thirsty. We, we know there's something out there, and it turns out to be somebody. It turns out to be Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Now, the woman said to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here any more to draw. She lived in the first century, oppressed by Rome, despised by Israelites, and in her case, fellow Samaritans. Her circumstances were awful. If Jesus could help her avoid the well, why not let him? Now Jesus is going to make it clear that he was talking about more than well water. Verse 16, he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, oh, yeah, you've well said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Busted. <laughs> Jesus, the God-man, as a man, received a supernatural word of knowledge. The word of knowledge is when the Holy Spirit, it's a gift of the Spirit, it's when he tells you something you don't know and can't know any other way. Uh, and so in this case, Jesus, remember now, Jesus is God, but he set aside his deity to walk like a man. He doesn't know until the Holy Spirit tells him. And then he speaks it to her. In a gentle but firm way, the Lord confronted her sin. She said, well, I don't have a husband. And he said, well, that's because you're a serial adulterer. And, uh, but, you know, but at the same time, uh, he did confront it. Eternal life is a free gift that cannot be earned or deserved, but there must be acknowledgement of and repentance from sin. As I said, she was a serial adulterer, currently committing fornication. God's word is pretty clear about what constitutes sexual sin. All of the stuff that's going on in the world today to promote aberrant sexual values doesn't supersede God's word. There are two genders, male and female. Sexual behavior apart from the benefit of the covenant of marriage is sin. Homosexual sin is not worse than heterosexual fornication and adultery. Marriage is one biological male and one biological female in a monogamous heterosexual covenant of companionship that lasts a lifetime. Those things cannot change. They are God's eternal principles. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. It sounds like an understatement, but there's something under that that's really interesting. Uh, she may have thought that Jesus was a character called the prophet that is predicted by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. He is someone who would speak God's word to the nation of Israel later in their career. Sort of a Messiah-like character called the prophet. So when she says, I perceive that you are a prophet, it isn't just, wow, you know something about me. She may have been thinking he was this guy. Remember, Nicodemus said, we know you're a man sent from God. Uh, and so these people were connecting with Jesus on some level, just not uh, the deep level that he was actually God come in the flesh. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. This is something about which a Samaritan would wonder. 
A contemporary example might be the confusion over why are there so many Protestant denominations or what's the Reformation with regards to Catholicism. Uh, and, and so this is not a, uh, a dodge on her part. She has a genuine question. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Samaritan religion was a false religion. It was established by human decision, contrary to the commands of God. All religions that are not biblical Christianity are false. The Apostle Paul explains this uh, this statement, salvation of the Jews, when in the book of Romans he says, to Israel pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. And so Jesus says, hey, the Samaritan religion, it's false. The Jews worship properly right now because all of these things were given to them, uh, but even Jerusalem is going to, or the temple is going to be gone in the future when all of us worship in spirit and in truth. Worship will not be in a place. It will just be in a person wherever you are. Uh, the hour is coming, he says, verse 23, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus just dismisses the controversy, explaining that neither will be a prescribed place to worship very soon. One commentator writes, the woman had talked about the worship of her fathers, but Jesus directs her to the worship of the father, which suggested a personal relationship as opposed to a ritualistic relationship. In the church age in which we live right now, if you're a Christian, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when Christians gather together, the Holy Spirit is there with them uh, collectively as well. In spirit refers to our human spirit made alive by God when we believe Jesus. It is made alive so we may connect with God whose nature is spirit. When you are born, you are born dead in trespasses and sin. Your spirit, that part of you which communicates with God, is dead. You're alive in the flesh and soulishly active, but spiritually dead. When you are born again, when you are saved, uh, then that spirit is brought to life so that you can have communion with God. In truth means that we are to worship God as he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ and in the Bible. It means that we uphold the character of God against all who would demean it. And then he says, for the father is seeking such to worship him. Don't think for a moment God needs worshipers. He doesn't. The triune God is perfect. The need is ours. Adam and Eve sinned. They hid from God. He sought them out and promised to restore them and their descendants. He promised to bring them back to fellowship for their sake to worship him. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ when he comes, he will tell us all things. Samaritans only recognized as biblical the first five books of the Bible. But it was enough for them to understand that there was a Messiah who was going to come and save them. You might not know very much, but if you are saved, you have a testimony. This is a problem every Christian has all the time. 
You always think you don't know quite enough to answer somebody and you're a little bit hesitant. Are you saved? Then you know enough to be saved. And, that's, and, and you can be like the guy later in the Gospels who says, hey, all I know is that one minute I was blind and now I can see. Why don't you tell me how that happened? It happened because I encountered Jesus Christ. And so you don't, you don't need to know very much. Our whole life we're learning what we know. What do we believe by studying the Bible? Nobody ever gets to the end and says, I know it all. Well, some people do, but they're liars, and then they have to start over again, right? There was a commercial years ago. The guy came out of a room, and he was all spaced out. And she goes, what were you doing? I was surfing the Internet. What part? And he goes, all of it, as if he'd been on every website possible. But uh, so, you know, uh, you don't need to know very much. Study to show yourself approved. Give an answer to every man of the hope that is in you, but don't hold back. Uh, anything because you, you know enough. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now the Bible knowledge commentary points out that normally in his ministry in Galilee and Judea, Jesus veiled his office and used the title son of man. He didn't want to come out as Messiah too soon because God had a timing for his ministry. Therefore, it's exceptional that Jesus spoke with such great revelation to this sinful woman. It's remarkable. He showed respect for Nicodemus, and, and he talked to Nicodemus and tried to lead him to faith, and we believe that Nicodemus was a believing Jew who in the end trusted Christ. But he was super tender and loving and wonderful with this woman. Uh, we, we have some sense because of the gods that we worship before we meet Christ, or the way God is portrayed, or gods are portrayed, that there's some kind of anger that there's some kind of fire pit that you need to walk through or over, uh, some kind of horrible thing that you need to do before God will turn his gaze upon you. And Jesus, weary, uh, you know, one of those situations where it's like, hey, I'm just going to sleep. Sure, there's a Samaritan woman over there, but I'm, I'm, she, does, she thinks I'm asleep. I'll just duck down this aisle. But no, he had a great compassion for this woman. He knew she wasn't saved because she was a Samaritan woman at noon. Uh, and, and the Lord was telling him to minister to her. And he did in such a tender, beautiful way, really revealing a lot of himself to her more than he had to many others at this time. And so if you, if you don't know the Lord, if you're a sinner and you don't know the Lord, you can come to him just as you are. Uh, there's nothing you need to do to clean yourself up. There's nothing you can do to clean yourself up. All you can do is come and realize that he has already come for you and died on the cross and rose from the dead so that you can have eternal life. In fact, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, obviously it's a God incidence, right? It's providential. It's, it's part of that whole idea that God has brought you here uh, to hear the gospel, to be a part of the worship, to see other Christians, and to get saved. God has been speaking to you this morning, and not only this morning, but probably in other incidents as well. Maybe a Christian has been talking to you. Maybe you heard something on the radio. Maybe something happened in your life that you can't put into perspective. Maybe if you're wondering about if there is a God and who is that God and who's right, why are there so many denominations and who's to say what's what? Well, we're here to tell you that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Josh McDowell is the first person I heard say, Jesus either is the Lord for saying that or he's a lying lunatic. Because, you know, it's either true or it's false. And we're here to say that it's true. There are coincidences in the truest biblical understanding of the word. 
It might be fun to think back if you're a Christian and recall some of the more notable ones in your walk with the Lord, times that things just fell into place and it was like, wow, what a coincidence I was here and this happened at just the time that God you know, was supposed to. I'm not saying everything in your life is going to be a woman at the well experience or something like that, but there, there have been a lot of coincidences in your life. And as you think about them, then trust the Lord for more of them and start looking for some of them. If you start feeling that something is a little bit weird or coincidental, it is in the biblical sense that God has you at a certain place at a certain time for a certain ministry. Maybe it's just to pray for somebody. Maybe it's to go up to somebody and say, hey, would you mind if I prayed for you? Maybe it's to share Christ with them in some creative way. I see you're buying orange juice. Oh, man, now, now I'm in trouble. I got to come up with something. Uh, J stands for Jesus. No, I just, I'm in so much trouble. Never, I'm going to write a note here. Never improvise when you're only at 45%. But anyway, uh, but you understand what I'm talking about. Uh, you've had coincidences in your past. You will have them in your future. I think we could have more of them. We don't create them. God is working through it. We just have to recognize them. Don't dart down the aisle. Make the talk. Make the confrontation. Whatever it is, let the Lord use you.